Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Today, interview number 45 in this podcast series features Jason G., a man whose moment of clarity materialized with the barrel of a cocked revolver resting against his head. That he didn't pull the trigger and managed to uncock the hammer of the pistol while still drunk gave him a singular pause to ask his higher power for help. That he's still sober some 27 years later is proof positive that a good sober life can be built and sustained by active participation in AA. Jason's journey to the doors of AA is similar to other alcoholics I've interviewed. Drinking in early adolescence, followed by marijuana and beer through high school, led to his often drunken participation in a college fraternity. His problem became so evident and acute that his fraternity brothers actually tried to stage an intervention to get him help. When that didn't happen, Jason continued the all-too-common metamorphosis into a functional alcoholic. He finished school, got a good job, and got married, only to find his drunken blackouts getting worse and literally dissembling every aspect of his life. By the time his second wife had told him she was leaving, his alcoholism had progressed to the point of a gun aimed at his own head. Fortunately, the resulting wake-up call became a call for help, which AA answered immediately. As you listen to Jason's story, you'll also hear about a malady that he and I share in our otherwise solid AA-driven lives, clinical depression. Perhaps you'll identify with our experience of fighting the mental illness of depression while trying to maintain sobriety. Fortunately for Jason and me, outside medical intervention was sought and applied. Today, while living enriched, sober lives, we are both unhesitant to discuss our experience within the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Though I've known Jason for only about a year and a half, through a weekly Zoom meeting we both attend, I feel as if I've known him for years. The calm wisdom and quiet confidence he expresses in his sobriety is that of a man who found AA at just the right time, thanks to a power greater than himself and his earnest working of a strong program one day at a time. So, without further delay, please enjoy the next 55 minutes with my friend and AA brother, Jason G. My name is Jason, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jason. That's my response in most of the rooms I go to. Sometimes it's hi, sometimes it's hello. I'm so glad you could do this today. This is really wonderful. You and I have gotten to know each other over the past year and a half, primarily through a Zoom meeting that we go to out of London. Mm -hmm. How did you find that meeting when you first started doing Zoom? Well, it kind of goes back to November of 2019, mm -hmm. just before COVID. My wife had started going back to our church, mm -hmm. um, and so I decided that I would I would start going to Sunday morning meeting, and that would be my church. Uh -huh. um, it's a meeting that I went to off and on for a while here in Nashville, mm -hmm. and I went, and it was... 2019? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I went to that meeting every week for a few months, mm -hmm. and then COVID hit, and the meetings closed. And so I was sitting at my desk one day. I was like, you know, I keep, kept hearing about Zoom meetings, mm -hmm. and I had found a 24-hour meeting on Facebook. Yeah. Um, and I was one of the early people that was going on that, mm -hmm. and that was starting to get, like, ridiculously large. Oh, yeah. And it was getting 
bombed pretty mm-hmm. regularly. Sure. And so I went to online, I went to AA Central Office for London. Yeah. Just because I was like, the best time for me to go to meetings is the middle of the day. Yeah. You know, noon here is six o'clock there. Right. Which is my lunch. And I can be, I can legitimately say I'm going, you know, I'm taking my lunch hour. I don't have to say I'm going to go eat. I just, I'm taking my lunch hour. Right. And I tried a handful of 6 p.m. meetings across Ireland, across uh-huh. the, uh, England and Scotland. Yeah. And I found that meeting not long after it had started. And I'm just like, you know what? I like these people. The timing is perfect. And the, the format of this meeting is is pretty good. So I just made that a, a Wednesday, Friday thing. It's kind of become my home yeah. group now. Yeah. If I don't show up, uh-huh. I get a I get a message on <laughs> WhatsApp. Hope you're doing well. I've made friends with yeah. you. I've made friends with Jimmy, yeah. um, Will. Yeah. There are a few other people that I keep in touch with. But I also go to a Tuesday meeting um, in uh, Scotland. So you and I have been going to that meeting. We've gotten to be kind of regulars there, too. Now, you've been sober how long now? November 17th will be 27 years. I got sober on November 17th, 1994. Was that coming out of treatment or did, was that the first day you got, you didn't drink? What was the circumstances around your first day? No. So it was actually the night before uh-huh. I had been, as usual, uh, drinking heavily beer. Mm-hmm. And through a set of circumstances, my wife, my new wife, less than six months, called she was out of town mm-hmm. and she called me and we had this long conversation through which she told me she didn't want me to be home when she got home. Hmm. And I had, you know, we talked further and I realized that I had become everything that I didn't want to be. Hmm. And I honestly felt like, I, I mean, I did, I felt like my life was absolutely over. So I went and got my pistol hmm. and I emptied it and I put one round in the, in the, um, cylinder, closed it, made sure it was, I'd, and it was the it's a the type of it, pistol where you pull the hammer back twice, it clicks twice to be fully, and so I pulled it back twice, and I I I put it to my head, and I'm sitting there, and I'm the things that went through my mind at the time are you know the typical stuff you're worthless, you're a piece of crap, right. um, nobody loves you, this you should have you know how did you how could you possibly have gotten here because you did this all to yourself you're just rotten nobody loves you nobody's going to care and then i thought about like well somebody's going to wind up having to clean up the mess off the wall behind me why i remember that i have no <laughs> idea um i was absolutely just slobber knocker drunk but clear as a day clear clear not my voice uh-huh. not my voice Clears a bell, I guess. I heard this voice say, "There's oh, there's a way out," and I, 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 I was instantly sober. Huh. Um, and I had had a lot of fear, um, and it was late. Um, uh, but and I was like, I, I was sober and kind of giddy. Mm-hmm. This is how sober I became. To uncock the pistol, you couldn't push a push a button and have it empty to uh, you had to uncock it first because it's engaged you have to slightly depress the trigger and use your thumb to lower the hammer back into place then you can empty it and i did that i mean and it's a tricky operation and you talk to anybody that's ever been around guns and that's that it's it's a dangerous thing Mm -hmm. 
And I, I did. I unloaded. And I, like, I wound up calling somebody that I had known previously in AA. I was like, I'm going to be back in AA tomorrow, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how, but I went to bed. The next morning I got up and like stuff was thrown everywhere and boxes had been moved. And the only thing I can think of is that in a blackout, I got up looking for the gun. But so that whole next day, this was a Thursday. So having been in AA before, I was going, I always went to the five o'clock meeting because I went straight there after Mm -hmm. work. And this five o'clock meeting, especially on Thursdays, Mm -hmm. was packed. There was 40, 60 people at this AA clubhouse. And I just knew what I would do uh-huh. um, because I was ashamed and, and everything. But I knew that I needed to get sober. So I was going to go to work and I would leave a little early and I would go to the clubhouse, get a cup of coffee, smoke cigarettes, sit at one of the tables working crossword puzzle as it filled mm-hmm. up. And once it was filled up and maybe as the meeting was started, I'd sneak in and get in the back of the room and nobody would have to see me. I wouldn't have to see anybody when they asked if there was anybody new. I could just raise my hand. It would be, you know, not a big deal. When they gave out chips at the end, if I felt like getting a chip, I could go out and get one. If I didn't, I could just get one afterwards and I wouldn't really have to deal with anybody. I could just start over. Day one would be simple and anonymous, right? Uh-huh. Um, so I sat in this clubhouse and it never, looking back at why this didn't occur to me, I don't know, but it, it was really quiet that day. Nothing special about the day. It, it wasn't Thanksgiving. It wasn't like it was the preceding Thursday right. of a long weekend or anything. It was just a normal day of the week. It was really quiet. And I, and, and it just, I remember thinking, look at my watch. It was like, wow, you know, it's time to go. It's so quiet up there. It must be in the uh-huh. moment of silence. And so I kind of walked up the stairs real quietly. At the time, there were two ways into this room with like a short sure. wall in between. You could go to the right and go to the yeah. back of the room and you could see that there was no one in there. And you could go through this door and you could see the front of the room where the, you know, the steps and the, the mm-hmm. slogans and stuff were on the wall. And this is where they usually be a chairperson sat and the secretary and so forth. And I could see a couple of people. And so I walked in there and I looked to my right and there's no oh, one wow. in the room. It's just these four men. And I don't, re- I don't remember actually thinking anything other than sitting down and they went, they read the steps, they read the traditions, they read the preamble, they read the opening. And then they said, is there anyone here for their first AA meeting or thinks they might have a problem with alcohol that might need some help? And all four men just looked at me and I'm getting chills at the moment. It's like, I just raised my huh. hand <laughs> in a meeting of five. I raised my hand and I said, my name is Jason and I'm an alcoholic and I need help. And I just started oh. sobbing. Um, and that was day one. That was day one after you had previously been in AA? Yeah. I first went to AA Labor Day weekend of 1992. Okay. So a couple years before you had gone to AA. Yeah. How did you end up there in 92? So a friend of mine, like my roommate and one of my friends that I've known mm-hmm. since like third grade, had continually kind of had some problems mm-hmm. with alcohol. And we were at a house party in it's August of earlier, sure. earlier that year. He, somebody had dared him to jump off of a balcony. So he did. He wound up going to a hospital and had to go through detox and somebody 12 stepped him and everything. And so he had to move out of our apartment for a while until he got himself yeah. sorted out. I, st- I was still, I mean, still drinking heavily, still trying to find some way to, to, to not feel whatever I was feeling. And, I overheard my other roommate and some of our other friends talking about how that they, they thought it was odd that that Randy was the one that that had gone to AA 
uh, when they thought really I was the one that probably needed it. So fast forward okay. that month, Randy, my buddy, and I go to uh, the opening game at where I went to college. Mm-hmm. And I'm showing him around and being the big man on campus and, you know, hey, guys, I'm back. Went to my fraternity house and I'm a hammer. Well, I woke up Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Randy didn't have didn't drive. I drove us down there shaking um, so bad that I couldn't light a cigarette. You know, I'm like, dude, I can't drive. Can you drive us home? He's like, yeah, sure. You okay? I'm like, yeah, I just, I, you know, I drank too much. And so I'm really hungover. And I'm sitting in my car and he's driving. I'm sit- and, I, and I said, hey, is there one of those AA meetings today? And he goes, yeah. I said, well, you take me to one of those. I was like, yeah, sure. We're dri- we go, we'll go to the house, drop our stuff off, and just and, and go straight there. And I'm like, okay. And we're in the car somewhere north of Birmingham, Alabama, south of Coleman. And I remember I said, dude, mm-hmm. don't go to the house. Just go straight to the AA meeting because if we go home, I won't go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I I went. I think it was September sixth, ninety two, um, and I started. I went every day. Um, I got a sponsor, and I tried. You know, he wasn't working this. He was he was a big talker. He talked a lot about how he was working the steps, but he about like th- two two and a half months in, he mm-hmm. confided in me that he had never worked the steps. And hadn't hadn't read the whole book, um, but things started to feel better. I started. I had money to pay my bills and uh-huh. money to eat, and I felt better. And that's really. I just didn't want to hurt anymore. And all of a sudden, I'm feeling better. I would. I was yeah. so in the zone, Howard. I would be on my knees in my bed praying and fall asleep in the middle of praying, and then wake up in the morning to my alarm still praying. You know, with with those words on my lips, and I was just in the groove. At come Christmas time, a lot of people come back from college. A lot of people want to get together, and I was like, you know, I'm going to have a beer and. Mm-hmm. It wasn't long after that that it, we were back in back at full speed. What happened when you came into AA on that September sixth? Between then and Christmas, did you drink at all during that period? No. Okay, so you were you weren't drinking. You were going to AA. You had a sponsor. Were you working the the steps? No, I wasn't working the steps because the sponsor I had he hadn't worked the steps, and so. A lot of times in my life, I felt like there were a lot of things people said, like, here's what you do, here's what you do, here's what you do. But that wasn't the reality. In my, in my home growing up, there was a lot of do what I say, not what I do. Uh-huh. I grew up with an alcoholic stepfather um, yeah. whose birthday happened to be St. Patrick's Day. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, he was not of great health. Um, we didn't talk about stuff. Mm-hmm. Looking back, I mean, I think I was a fantasist. You know, trying to live in this what I the way I wanted things to be, the way I hoped they would be, rather than the way they were, most of my life. Yeah, as an escape from whatever was going on at home. Yeah. How old were you when he became your stepfather? Five. Um, I actually have a really good relationship with my dad. Okay. So, do you remember your your father? No. Um, my stepdad was not always like that. In fact, I was very happy when my mom and he got married. Huh. Um. It got particularly difficult after he had a series of heart attacks in his late 30s and bypass surgery. And after that, it was combined that with the fact that I was a teenager, you know? Yeah. Was he a drinker? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, he actually um, he died walking to the liquor cabinet in the middle of the night, and that's not oh. a euphemism. That's I mean that that's literal actual fact. He sat down to catch his breath and had a massive heart attack and wow. keeled over. How old were you when that happened? Thirty-two. Did you um, do you have siblings that grew up in that environment as well? Yeah, I have one sibling that is about seven years younger than me. Um, he is uh, in recovery, as is his wife. So it kind of runs in the family, there, doesn't it? you could say that sounds like childhood was pretty chaotic for you huh yeah you know so i mean like i don't want to say every year but pretty regularly there was a saint patrick's day party that was coincided with Mm -hmm. my dad's birthday party where we would have kegs of green beer and green punch and you know so and he drank this god-awful stuff called uh old fitzgerald um i don't think you can even he would buy cases of it my friends and i would just would Mm -hmm. take a bottle he would never notice it's because because he drank so much of it, you know. I mean, it it was probably. I mean, honestly, I'd like to. I, I, I don't know if I, I like to say this, but I uh, started drinking professionally at the age of fifteen. So you would have already been in going into high school or in your say freshman year of high school. Yeah, I was in high school. I had had drinks uh-huh. before that, sneaking beer at the at uh-huh. the birthday parties. Um, my my mom's. Dad, my grandfather, he was not an alcoholic, mm-hmm. but um, he drank a beer called Sterling. Um, I remember taking one of his beers out of his refrigerator and hiding uh, out behind his barn yeah. slash shed, drinking a whole Sterling just because, you know, my dad and my, my grandfather uh-huh. were in there having a beer. You know, I wanted to be a man. But once I started drinking, I blacked Did out you? the first time. It's funny is I started drinking in November of 1984. And I got sober 10 years later in November of 1994. So I drank for 10 years. And I would say 85% of that 10-year period is a blackout. When you had that first blackout, uh, Jason, do you remember what you felt when you woke up? Did it scare you at all? Or what, what were your perceptions of your first number of times drinking? What I remember is the first time that I went to a party with some girls from that I had met through right. uh-huh. youth group at church. Um, who went to uh-huh. a different high school and they were older. They gave me a beer in the car. That's the last thing I remember. So I may, I think I blacked out. I don't know how, but I blacked out from that moment. I remember bits and pieces of it through like uh, coming to in the backyard of mm-hmm. this band party. I've got a, a vague memory of being handed a cup with some like fruit punch mm-hmm. and alcohol out of a garbage can that was lined with plastic bags, you know? I didn't know that that's what that was. I didn't know what a blackout was. I thought that that's what drinking was, right? Because people always yeah. talk about how they do terrible things when they're drinking. I was like, okay, well, I must not know what I'm supposed to be doing. It, it probably wasn't until maybe like six or seven months later that I started realizing that I was saying and doing things and these blackouts that were embarrassing or, I mean, embarrassing because they were not who I was. Like I would say mean things to people or um, would do mean things. So can I assume as a result of the blackout, you didn't necessarily remember these things? Were they told to you? I, I didn't remember these things at all. So you got feedback on how you were acting from other people. Right. That must have been rough. Well, it was, I, I still kind of thought, okay, well, every, if this happens to everybody, it's not just me. So I, I just continued. Mm-hmm. I had a girlfriend in college who asked me one time if, she, if I thought maybe did I have uh, multiple personality disorder? I said, what do you mean? She says, sometimes you are amazing and wonderful and I want to spend all my time with you. And other times you are cruel and insensitive 
and mean. And, and hmm. other times you're like a child that can't be consoled over a broken toy. She's like, I, I don't never hmm. know who I'm going to be around. As far as I recall, I've only ever had one person ever tell me they never wanted to see me again. And that was like as the result of making an amends, <laughs> which was like, I was like, okay, that's not how I envisage that working, but yeah. that's, you know, it is what it is. So this girlfriend didn't connect the dots between the drinking and the different personalities. Did you see that yourself? No, my fraternity brothers did. What did they tell you about it? So I went on, I studied anthropology and archeology. span And one mm-hmm. of the, one of the things in our course was, um, we did a, a, a archaeology sociology trip to Mexico, and I roomed with two of my fraternity brothers. Uh-huh. And most of that's kind of a blackout as well. Um, there uh-huh. are bits and pieces I remember. One of these guys later told me that when we all got back from Mexico, that the two of them and several of the older guys in the fraternity got together and were plotting. This is and this is in '89. They mm-hmm. were they were like trying to figure out how to have an intervention. Um, and at this point, if you think about it, I haven't even been drinking, not even five full years. Um, I, I learned much later that they had like, they were trying to figure out how to get in touch with my parents Hmm. to like help them get it organized. You know, maybe it just out of sight, out of mind. Cause, um, I had moved out of the fraternity house and I was, I mean, I was drinking every day. Um, I was doing, I was smoking pot every day Mm -hmm. and smoking cigarettes nonstop. But I, you know, here's the thing, Howard, I, I grew up in a upper middle class home. I went to a prep school. I, yeah. I was given a car when I turned 16. Yeah. I had a television in my room. I had a stereo, uh-huh. I had f- a phone in my room. I had every material thing that I wanted or needed. And maybe that was enough. What I didn't have is somebody that would say no mm-hmm. or hold me accountable. So you were enabled during this entire time. Well, you know, dad was checked out in his own alcoholism. Mom was trying to manage life with him and with my younger brother. Yeah. I don't look back and, you know, point my finger at them in any way, shape or form because we all have our own stuff. But the other thing is kind of mid to late 80s, though. I mean, that's kind of what you did. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, I... I, I'm, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. I've, li- I've lived here most of my life. And uh-huh. that's kind of what we did. You know, we yeah. were talking, the, some of us were talking the other day about it. I was like, I went to school with people that drove pickup trucks that had rifles in the gun racks right. and nobody ever got shot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it was a different time. There was a lot of, you know, driving pickup trucks and going mudding and drinking beer and going to football games and doing yeah. that kind of stuff. But once I left the confines of home, it was on, brother. Well, too, and I remember the early 80s and the late 80s were when I did the lion's share of my drinking and, and drug use. And I remember exactly what you're talking about. It was the time of, you know, throwing caution to the wind. It was before AIDS was a big thing, so that influenced uh, a lot of behavior. But that was a tough time to come to terms with any kind of problem with drugs or alcohol. There were some treatment alternatives out there, but there weren't many. This intervention, I'm curious about that that's that I haven't I've never heard of that being done by fraternity brothers I mean you think of of probably the last group in the world to ever do an intervention on somebody but so that didn't work out here's what's funny is like my friend Randy that took me to my first meeting when we were like 17 years old he's like dude you just need to learn how to drink with moderation uh fast forward like three years
years and my best friend in the fraternity, a guy named Merle, mm-hmm. was like, dude, you just need to learn to drink with some moderation. Uh. <laughs> you know, that was kind of their perspective on yeah. it. I mean, because that was our, that was really kind of our reality. That's mm-hmm. the way life was. I'm actually still connected to a lot of those guys. Mm. Only two of them. One of the guys from Mexico that went with me from Mexico and, and another, another guy know the full extent of me getting sober and, and, you know, some of the stories. But I mean, like I said, Howard, I'd say 80 plus percent of that 10 year period is a blackout. Did any of those guys from your fraternity, did any of them go into the program or did, did any of them have difficulties with alcohol or drugs that you know of? I know that one of my ple- my pledge brothers, one of my ter- fraternity brothers was arrested for DUI. Uh-huh. Um, and he kind of, I don't know whether he went to treatment or, or, or what, but I never actually saw him again. I think the other thing about the 80s is this like, you know, going to treatment right. was kind of the hip thing to the cool thing to do. Your right. parents trundling you off. Yeah. The first sponsor with whom I worked the steps mm-hmm. got his first drink out of my car when we were 15. Um, he got sober when he was 19 years old uh-huh. and I was with him on one of his last drunks. Huh. It's funny how more has happened to me as far as development in sobriety than I could tell you about happening to me before. You know, I've heard speakers talk and they tell funny stories about the, the things that they did and yeah. people laugh. It's like, so I don't have any of those things because either... What I do remember is horrid, yeah. and what I don't remember and have heard secondhand is also terrible. <laughs> well, yeah, and you know, that that's a mixed blessing, too, when you think yeah. about it. I mean, I, I never blacked out a lot. Every now and then I would, but I, I always remembered what I did for the most part. And when I didn't, people would go into graphic detail about what I did. But, you know, the the blessing side of that is that all of the self-recrimination and self-loathing and low self-esteem issues, which are activated by that kind of behavior, don't show up because you just don't remember it. And then you go into AA and you have large gaps where you're trying to write your fourth step and then trying to come up with a list of people for your eighth step. And and. They don't show up because you 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 blacked out about them. I actually drank for about a dozen years straight and smoked pot every day uh, from the time I was 18 until I got sober at uh, at 30, almost 31. So that's a kind of a concentrated period. And I've interviewed people on the show that were drinking for 40 years uh, before finally getting sober and other people who got sober at uh, 19. I got a guy I sponsor now who got sober when he was 14 and he's already got 24 years or something like that of sobriety. But what's interesting is that without the memory, it seems like it wasn't as long as it actually was. Do, do, do those gaps, do they make the time seem shorter for you or, or can you get a sense of time that you drank? I get a sense of time that I drank because I'm not as close as I used to be. There was a period of time where I was still close to a lot of the people that were in my life at that during those times. I see. Yeah. Desperately wanted me to live. Yeah. But it, some of them had given up hope that I would. I run into people every so often, and you know they relay to me in in so many words that they're really happy to see me mm-hmm. because no one. Ex- I, I don't think anyone expected me to make it to thirty. Yeah. I I mean, me personally, I didn't expect that I would make it to 25. It's funny. I did. I, I mean, that's how old I was when I started. The 10 years 
was four years of high school and four years of college. Yeah. You know, a couple added in. People reminisce a lot about that time frame about, oh, how it was back in high school and yeah. we did all this stuff. What I do remember is horrible. So uh, in a lot of ways, I've kind of had to take a t- step back and realize that my perspective and my perception of that that time span is probably not as bad. <laughs> You're still in the phase where your mind is still developing. They always say that the the brain is not fully developed until about age 26, which means that a lot of the things you're doing between 18 and 25, 24 or 26 are things that are being done with a not fully formed and functioning brain. And there's a lot of stuff going on that lends itself to addiction and alcoholism within that framework. It sounds to me like you almost had a self-fulfilling prophecy there with the gun. Uh, you know, you said you didn't think you'd live to 30. You almost fulfilled that by until you came to. You had that moment of clarity, it sounds like. Um, the next day when you went to AA, was it the day after that episode or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was it like for you during your first days and weeks and even months in AA? What were your perceptions? Well, at the time, I was working as an assistant manager in a retail establishment in a mall. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever had that job from Thanksgiving to Christmas, which was (laughs) when I was getting sober, it's brutal. Um, it really, I, you know, I controlled the schedule. So I basically, I worked the days and would go to a meeting and would go home. I worked the days I went to a meeting, I went home Mm. and that Thanksgiving, my parents went to my grandmother's and one of my, my former roommates from college had lived in Nashville was like, here, come to Thanksgiving dinner with us. So I had a lot of friends that, Mm -hmm. that came out Mm -hmm. of the woodwork to let me let me know that they cared about me. Um, you know, honestly, Howard, I, I, I don't remember a lot. I remember going to meetings. I remember praying a, a lot. Um, I remember reading and rereading the first 164 pages. So the friends that you had, those weren't new AA friends, were they? They were your old friends from, from the past. These are, these are people that are not alcoholics that cared about me, that remained my friends in spite of me. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. The Big Book Podcast is produced by Howard L., who receives no remuneration for this vital AA service work. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. When you were going to the meetings early on, what were your expectations about what those meetings would do for you? I know when I first started going, I thought, I only want to have to go until I don't have to go, meaning that sooner or later, I will become a non-alcoholic and will be able to go back to drinking. What were your expectations when you first went in and how optimistic were you? I had heard enough, don't drink, go to meetings. Once I made the decision to go to AA, I never wanted to drink again. That's not to say that I 
didn't want to find some way to not feel what I was feeling at various times. Mm -hmm. I stuffed it with food, um, cigarettes, fantasy, you know, any number of things, retail therapy, you know, anything. Mm -hmm. But my expectation was that if I went to meetings long enough, Mm. I I would stay, I would get and stay sober. And Mm. I just went and I continued to go. And I kept going and I kept going and I kept going. And, mm-hmm. you know, the fog started to lift. I, I, a friend of mine who was, who was an AA friend and mm-hmm. had been a friend for a while, she introduced me to this guy to be my sponsor. But he and I could never connect. We went to different meetings and he wasn't one for phone calls. You've heard me talk about being in this clubhouse where they, all these much older guys from the World War II and Korea generation. So I asked this guy that, um, I had seen before uh-huh. um, older gentleman uh-huh. who's in his sick, late sixties, uh-huh. early seventies at the time is a retired FBI agent. It was like, will you be my sponsor? He's like, yeah, sure. And after about maybe six weeks or so, he sat me down and told me that he had gotten drunk the night before. How long had he been sober previously? Uh, 20 year, 20 something years. That's right. So, but I mean, he, he kept going to meetings and again, it's like people if they are listening to this, don't do what I did because it may not work. But um, I made a decision to well, go back good. to school and to keep going to meetings. And so I started working the steps, right? So I had done one and two appropriately. On your own or with a sponsor? With with the guy that got drunk. Okay. So you had six weeks worth of working the steps with him before he got drunk. Yeah. And then what happened? Did you guys just part at that point? Or Yeah. I sat down and... I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you're reading the material and it's like you're reading the words and it's not making sense. I mean, I spent a lot of time reading about the fourth step yeah. and looking at the thing. So I went and I, and I bought a legal pad uh-huh. and I spent the next like two and a half years filling this legal pad. I would sit down somewhere and I would literally go through and um, columns and something would occur to me and I'm like, uh-huh. oh. And I would write it down. I spent two, two and a half years filling this legal pad. And so the funny thing is, is like I, I might grab a napkin and I would do the columns on a napkin uh-huh. and then I would stuff that in the legal pad. While I was in school, I would hang out in the smoking section of the student union and there were three or four people that I bumped into there that just happened to be in AA. They were my age. And oh, so cool. we would sit around and smoke cigarettes and uh-huh. talk stuff. I finally ran into the, to the, the guy that had gotten his first drink out of my car. Um, and I'm like, dude, I need a sponsor. I need somebody to help me work through the steps. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you don't think that our history is going to be a problem. I'm like, look, you're sober. You work with people. I can tell just right. by looking at you, you've worked the steps. I need somebody to help me work the steps. Are you willing to do it? He's like, yeah, sure. And so we went through the steps and I, I got my fourth step. I went to his house um, and we sat down. And of course, like a lot of people, I've got like three or four pages full of stuff that I'm never going to tell anybody. I've done the, done the work, but I'm not fucking telling anybody. I'm not telling anybody. So we started from the beginning. I just went through and he, he would ask questions and you know, there was no, no judgment. I fully expected him to kind of make fun of me or poke at me. I mean, I really, cause I really still didn't trust people a lot. We smoked cigarettes, we drank coffee, water. And I, I mean, I went through this whole thing and I'm like, so that's it. He goes, so is the real, what, what's in your list that you're, that you don't want to tell me? Do you have stuff? I'm like, yeah, I got stuff. He goes, you know, do, do you feel like going through it? You know, mm. and I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? And so I told him those things 
and this guy knows all of my non-AA friends. This yeah. guy knows he's been my friend slash acquaintance for most of my life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and no judgment. And he says, is there anything else? I'm like, no. And he goes, all right, I want you to go home. I want you to read this section. I want you to do what it says to do and then call me tomorrow. And I did it. Huh. And at this point I had finally come to terms with the fact that I was going to do this stuff. Even if everyone else was full of crap, I was going to do it. Yeah. And Somebody somewhere had done it and it had worked. I was going to do it. It was going to work. And I didn't care if everybody was faking. I didn't care if I walked in and they all pointed at me and laughed going, oh, my God, I can't believe you did that. You know, I was going to do it. Uh So I woke up the next day and as I'm brushing my teeth and shaving, getting ready to go to work, I'm like, this is exactly the way I want to feel for every moment of every day for the rest of my life. What a realization. Yeah. And I started making amends properly with, you know, not too long after that. With his help, your sponsor's help. Yeah. And I got involved in service work. My, you know, life started to kind of work, but there was still something wrong. Yeah. Something that just never felt right Mm -hmm. with me. You know, I I hate to truncate this, but it's like fast forward like 12 years and Mm -hmm. I'm going through a divorce and I realized that that something that's not right is that I'm depressed. Mm-hmm. And I was actually listening to, I guess I think it's Diane S. Yeah. The other day. And I don't know what she said that triggered this, but it was like this undercurrent in my life was uh, had even sober. It's like that I was pissed off mm-hmm. because everyone else seemed to be okay. Uh-huh. And I never seemed to be happy with where I was when I was. Yeah. And it was going through this divorce that I realized, and I was going to AA, going to more AA meetings. It's like, mm-hmm. this is something, something's really not right here because this is making it worse. What kind of advice were you getting from people when you'd share about the feelings that you were having of being depressed? So I didn't realize I was depressed until as I was going through this, I like when I was going to AA meetings, I didn't realize I was depressed. I didn't know what it, what was wrong. So what kind of things were you doing at that point with regard to AA to deal with what you later found out was the depression? So I was reading literature. Yeah. Um, I was going to meetings and offering to be a sponsor if anybody needed help. Uh-huh. And the guys around me, um, a lot of the men around me were my age, had been sober as long as I had. Uh-huh. Or a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, and they were all saying, you just need to get with people and work with more people. You need to work with more people. And I'm like, dude, I'm going through a divorce. I got a job. Mm-hmm. I'm living in an apartment. I have three kids. I can't breathe. I'm not. I, I can barely form sentences. Yeah. And so something in my head had said, you need to go to Al-Anon. And I had been very contemptuous of Al-Anon because what I had heard from a lot of the old timers was that those are the sickest of the bunch. Blah, yeah, blah, right, blah, blah, right. Blah. Yeah, yeah. Well, no shit. Maybe yeah. they are the sickest of the bunch, but I'm re, I'm, I yeah. was really in a bad way. So I started going to Al-Anon. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I went to an Al-Anon meeting in this church and it had a tiny room and the huge room next door was out the AA meeting. Right, right. And I go in here and it's, it's all women. Yeah. And I'm like, fudge, you know, I'm like, (laughs) so I'm just, I'm sitting there and it's, and I I get the literature and I'm reading the literature Mm -hmm. and 
and I kept coming back and I kept going back and they kept telling me, don't worry, there are men that come to this meeting. Yeah. We yeah, promise there are yeah, men that come to these yeah. meetings. And so I was going to this eight o'clock meeting, um, two days a week, which is the only times it was held. Sure. But it was like a 30 minute drive from where I was. So, right. and finally some men started to show up and I started doing those steps and I started, started really working that stuff. And that's when I realized that this awful, persistent dis-ease, discomfort, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is depression. Mm -hmm. And that was Labor Day 13 or 14 years ago. And in the 13 or 14 years that have passed uh -huh. since then is where I have seen the majority of my growth um, in sobriety. Mm-hmm. So I'm 52. Mm -hmm. So I was 39. I remember that. So it's been 13 years. The majority of my, my growth and um, stabilization mm -hmm. has taken place in the last half of my sobriety. So was that as a result of starting to deal with the disease of depression concurrently with the disease of alcoholism? Absolutely. You know, I mentioned this, you know, a couple of weeks ago in a meeting you and I are both in. It's like it's a result of the recognition that I've got a problem that's not alcoholism. Um, dealing with that appropriately right. and then making some changes mm -hmm. in my my daily routine appropriate to a recovering alcoholic mm -hmm. that didn't move the needle just a little bit. I mean, it swung the pendulum the opposite yeah. way. Yeah. And it has allowed me to live i mean to to yeah. live back to the way i was when i woke up after the sixth and seventh step where i looked in the mirror and said this is the way i want to feel for the rest of my life uh-huh back to i fall asleep saying my prayers again that is really cool and you know what's interesting about that jason is my story is very similar with with regard to depression you've heard me talk about it in meetings it's something that doesn't get talked about enough i'm talking about clinical depression not the blues you know dealing with that as a separate disease but one that's also intertwined with my alcoholism my worst days are when my alcoholism and depression gang up on me and then it's like two on one it's those diseases against my sobriety and i better be in the middle of the program i better be adhering to whatever medications i've been prescribed to fill in the molecule that's missing in my brain, I better be doing those things if I'm going to get through that time. And Bill Wilson, the others in AA, say, you know, if you got a medical problem, you, you deal with it as a medical problem, and then you treat your alcoholism the way we're suggesting you do that. But like you, the difference between prior to knowing that and knowing it and moving ahead with a program while treating the depression, it's night and day, isn't it? It is. You know, I read when I was about four years sober, I read a lot about emotional sobriety and a, a lot of mm -hmm. those things, you know, there, you know, for people that don't have both alcoholism and clinical depression, it, it's like somebody that's not an alcoholic trying to explain to, to an alcoholic what they need to do or what the problem is. Right. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it, you can't explain it to somebody, but it's like pornography, man, you know, when you see it. And there's a lot of misguided judgmentalism that goes on. Oh, you can't be sober if you're taking medication, yeah. Right. Or, you know, just do these simple things that I do when I get the blues. And I always have to stop at that point and explain to them the difference between the occasional 
down feeling or feeling the blues and the clinical depression, which to me, the best example of, of, of a clinical depression is everything is going absolutely great in your life and you still feel like shit. You can physically feel yourself sinking. Absolutely. You see, so a guy like you and a guy like me can relate to each other. But what occurs to me is it wasn't until I started talking about it in meetings and I always kept from talking about it because I, you know, I felt you know, defective and I felt judged. But it wasn't until I started speaking about it in meetings and leading meetings on it that people would come out of the woodwork afterwards and say, man, I'm so glad you said that. I, I've been dealing with this and I haven't felt comfortable talking about it. And, and even my sponsor doesn't know about it. And, you know, it, when you when you relate it to being a medical condition, then you can find a place in the big book that says treat your medical conditions as medical conditions. Right. Yeah. What I know is that it's 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 just a companion. It's it's something that I've got and I've had, you know, treatment for that and the tools and things that I've learned through being an AA mm -hmm. have catapulted me into this existence that I didn't think was actually possible. I mean, I, you know, 13, 14 years ago, I remember thinking, okay, this is as good as it's going to get for me. And, and the thing is, is that it would come out as the is undercurrent of anger and oh, irritability. Yeah, yeah. You know, the people around me were afraid of me is not the right word, but were uncomfortable because it just, it seemed like I was angry all the time. Yeah. You know, I've been around those people and it, it, it's not fun. And I just think that they thought of me like that was, you know, frustrating. But, the, you know, it's like I've benefited a lot from this, but the people that who I've heard from, mm -hmm. chiefly my, my children yeah. and my wife, that have noticed the change over the last, let's say, little more than a decade. And I've had my children come to me separately and say, I'm really proud of the changes that you've made. Mm -hmm. My ex-wife has even said that she was fairly <laughs> impressed with my ability to have changed as much as I have. You had mentioned earlier that you had gotten divorced and you also mentioned uh, before we even came on about it being an anniversary for you now. So what was that transition yeah. like for you? How long were you on your own before you got remarried? About three years. And was this during the period when you had uncovered the depression and started dealing with it? So I, at the time I was going through my divorce is when I, I kind of came to this realization and um, I had gone to a, an Al-Anon yeah. treatment center. Yeah. Like there were people in my group and there were a handful of us from Nashville. Uh -huh. Um, and you know, they tell you when you leave here, you find accountable sure. buddies. And so we were all like, all right, we're all from Nashville. We'll hold each other accountable, mm -hmm. we'll go to meetings, whether it's, you know, adult children of alcoholics, you know, Al-Anon, mm -hmm. whatever it is, you know, they hold each other accountable. And I was trying desperately to save my marriage. I would do anything to save my marriage. Uh -huh. And my wife, my new wife, my current wife, um, was trying to figure out how to get out of hers. Hmm. Um, and so we were, we were in a group of people that included my former sponsor, the guy that I've known since I was 15. Uh -huh. Um, there was a group of us that would go out and go to, go to dinner, go to movies, go bowling, do whatever, just a group mm -hmm. of us. You know, I, I wound up getting a divorce. And then at some point during that time, um, Ellie and I started dating. Uh huh. So she was your friend before you started dating. Yeah. It's always good. She is not an alcoholic. She's in recovery, but she's not an alcoholic, which uh -huh. my ex-wife, uh, I met in AA. But I mean, all of that growth has taken, taken place since September of 2008, I think. 
Must have made a big difference to your AA program, too, then. How did you see your program changing as a result of dealing with the depression? Um, significantly better able to root out and address um, selfishness and self-centeredness. So a lot of a lot of that for me, I, you know, it's part of being an alcoholic, but it, a lot of it stems yeah. from wanting to live in that fantasy world and control, you know, control, right? Have everything work uh -huh. a certain way. And, um, mm -hmm. but I mean, my relationship with, with God, it's what I call my higher power yeah. with God, um, has deepened mm -hmm. during that time. Um, I've been fired, um, mm -hmm. with, you know, with reason, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> wasn't, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, had, you know, had to go through a job search, which is, which is hard, gotten hired, had another deep, deep dive of depression where I was sitting right there and could mm. feel I did what you said. You, you were just like, I look around there's my kids are healthy. I, my career is skyrocketing. I have money. Mm -hmm. My wife is healthy. Um, I'm healthy. I want for absolutely nothing. And yet I want to die. I want this pain to end, you know, uh, go to therapy. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. it has also allowed me to dealing with the depression and doing and a, and a better relationship with God has allowed me to um, become a mentor for other people mm -hmm. and apply the principles of AA to my professional life. And I mean, in, in a really amazing way, mm -hmm. you know, I work with people that are 20, sometimes 30 years younger than me mm -hmm. and invariably in, I'm a consultant. And so invariably mm -hmm. at the end of the day, we're all in the hotel room you know, we all mm -hmm. meet up to go somewhere and I'm sitting there drinking a ginger ale or a water or, mm -hmm. um, iced tea. And it brings up the conversation. You don't drink. <laughs> and so, yeah. and you can always pick out the ones that think they might have a problem. Yeah. They're the ones who want to find out why you don't drink. <laughs> can't, isn't there something they can do to get you to drink? <laughs> yeah. I've never had that problem, but I mean, invariably I have pointed people towards AA that way a handful of times um mm -hmm. the changes in the program that i've made in like my personal program and my routine and the the, the dealing with the other outside issue and mm -hmm. just really wanting to to stretch and see what's possible being open to anything i mean even to the point of like mm -hmm. you know something happens and stopping myself from calling it good or bad just kind of observing what it is, you know, and in the meetings you and I are in, you hear me a lot of times say is like, you know, living life on life's terms is what people need to come to grips with early on in AA because we live in this fantasy sometimes when we come to AA that like everything's just going to get better. Yeah. Well, it might for a while, but eventually something terrible is going to happen. Well, yeah. And, you know, when we talk about living life on life's terms, isn't it true that we would also dearly love to know what those terms are? Uh, in advance so that I could agree to them. Yeah. Like, like you know, the, the serenity prayer always seems to be the prayer that's written incorrectly to me. It seems to me that, you know, we ask for the serenity to accept the things we can't change, the courage to change the things we can. And as a result of muddling through those first two things, then we get... The 
wisdom. In my mind, I'm thinking, why can't I have the wisdom to know the difference between the things I can and cannot change and then go forward having the serenity to uh, things I can't change and the courage to change the things I can. And in reality, it is that way. Yeah. So there's a I refer back to Joe. Joe was in the mm-hmm. Marines and in the Pacific in World War II. And I don't, mm-hmm. Joe died in like 96 or 97, mm-hmm. I think. He said, boy, life ain't like school. He said, in school, they teach you everything and then they give you the test. He said, you're going to come in here and you're going to get the test and then we're going to teach you how to handle it. And he had a deep, gravelly voice. And I Uh wish I could really do a good job of imitating his voice because it was super impactful because it filled the room that you were in. Um, When you first get sober, that in the first, sometimes first two, three, four years, that's really the way it is. Is life happens and then you refer to the tools, right? Right. It's after you've been sober a while. That's what makes, you know, having a sponsor that's got some sobriety, you know, that's been around for a while. That was what was really helpful is that. Uh-huh. That can help you. It can help educate you before some of the stuff happens, so that your automatic response isn't: "Is this my excuse where I get to go drink? Is this right. my excuse where I can smoke again, or you know, whatever?" And instead, automatically fall onto, "Okay, God, help me get through this." Yeah, exactly. And and that's when I'm in meetings. One of the things I always suggest is. Keep going to meetings until you run out of reasons to drink. And uh, <laughs> what, what you know, it's it's really true because when I was new, I thought, well, what could possibly go wrong in my life that would justify my going out and taking a drink? Where everybody in the room would say, it's okay for Howard to have a drink because this horrible, terrible thing happened. Fortunately, none of that happened in my first three or four years. But I did get to see people getting terminal diseases, losing children, losing spouses, having financial ruin, uh, just everything that a human being can endure, and they didn't drink. So I ran out of reasons, right? That's the thing. It's like I I was a child when I drank. In sobriety, I've experienced two divorces, the the death of a parent, Mm -hmm. um, two marriages, the birth of three children, Mm. the loss of a job, near financial Mm -hmm. ruin, um, arguments. I've experienced extreme highs, but I have yet to discover or see anything that has made me want to, to drink again. Yeah. Um, now I might not like the way I feel. Um, and before I quit smoking, I probably mm-hmm. stuffed some of those feelings with nicotine. Oh, yeah. And I've, you know, I've probably, you know, not, not probably, I've bought clothes or, you know, a television or whatever to kind of. Yeah, yeah. It takes us that life on life's terms, man, because life's brutal. And when we get through it, because we share that common experience with each other in, in a way that we're sharing it for ourselves, but we're also sharing it for the other guy. And I think getting out of ourselves and being of service to other people, even if it's just by something that we share in a meeting or whatever, can make really, really all the difference in the world. We've been talking for quite a while now, and I think I've gotten a pretty good idea of 
the overall story of uh, Jason G. But let me ask you this. If the Jason of today was able to teleport back with the knowledge you have now and talk to the Jason of yesteryear, like Jason at the worst time of his addiction and alcoholism, what would you what words of advice would you give him? Or what could you possibly tell him that would make a difference? I, I don't know that there is anything, you know, I mean, um, that kid was, that kid was damaged seriously. And it, and it took, I mean, is, is it evidenced by our conversation? Seriously. I mean, it, it took 10, 12 years of sobriety to, uh, to unhook a lot of that damage to get it to where you could start to work with what you had. Right. I think if I were to go back, if we change your question a little bit, right. I think if I were to go back, I would have found somebody to 12 step that 17 year old who had uh, been taken yes. to the emergency room with alcohol poisoning. Um, that clubhouse was full of other 16, 17, 18 year old kids getting sober at that time. Uh-huh. Um, Nashville is one of those places where there are a lot of people, a lot of people my age that mm-hmm. are sober um, and have long-term sobriety. And mm-hmm. when I say long-term, I mean 20-plus. Yeah. And, and like good quality, not like crazy. <laughs> no, right, right. I get it. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and... It, I don't know that, that Nashville's any any special or anything. I just mm-hmm. think it's you know there there are a lot of there are a lot of people here. What I would I would have somebody else other than me twelve step that seventeen year old um, because that was pretty low. Uh, yeah, I, I've often thought the same thing whenever I kind of consider that fantasy about what it would have been like if I'd had someone to talk to me at that point. But frankly, you know, I had to do everything that I did to get where I am. Thinking back to the kind of guy I was at 17 or 18 or 20, I don't, and there may have been people who did approach me. I don't remember them on purpose, Uh, but, uh, (laughs) you know, over the years I do. But the fact is, I pretty sure I wouldn't have listened to them. I would have said, you're the, you're the one with the problem. If you think I've got the problem, you're the one who has the problem thinking I have the problem. So, uh, so I, I sometimes ask that question because it, it's kind of a good way to reassure me that the work I've done in AA has had a cumulative value to it. Yeah. And that after all these years sober, I have what I perceive as a good spiritual basis and a good program beneath me such that I can live an enriched life. And really, that's all I'm seeking. Yeah, it, that's probably the, the best and most accurate statement is, is that you, you got to go through what you got to go through. That's yeah. just, you know, that's just that's just the way it is, whether whether you are still drinking and need to get sober and you happen to hear this, you got to go through what you got to go through. And the, 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 the same is true for when you're sober. Right. Yeah. You have to go through what you have to go through to get where you need to be. Yeah. And and so then the the biggest job and the greatest service that you and I and anybody else with any modicum of sobriety can do is to keep the hope elevated amongst those who are new and early and struggling in the program to know that they too, by the time they get through what they get have to get through, they will be able to 
enjoy what it is they want to enjoy and uh, gain what they want to gain and that sort of thing, I would think. That's a, that's a really kind of a cool way to end, Jason. Is there, is there anything else just uh, thinking about uh, uh, this and Jason's message to the world of alcoholics, those still drinking and those in the rooms who are struggling? I don't know. I tell people a lot of times, look, don't drink, go to meetings. It, and if that's all you can do, do that until you need to do more because it takes whatever it takes. Yeah. And you never, ever have to drink again. And yeah. you're not alone. Yeah. But you never have to drink again. You choose to drink again, but you never have to drink again. Yeah. That's, that's the message of hope. And that puts a bow on it all, I think. And I want to thank you so much for doing this today, brother. I yeah, love you, and, love I, you and I appreciate your willingness to go out there on whatever limbs you and I have been out on today to talk about some of the stuff that needs to be talked about and heard, yeah, especially absolutely. when it comes to things like co-occurring other diseases like depression and so forth. You're a heck of a man, and I, I've really enjoyed getting to know you and am looking forward to having a good relationship in the future. Absolutely. Thanks a million, brother. Take care. Thanks. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Jason G. for sharing his story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please help me spread the word by recommending it to at least everyone you know? That includes sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of help to more and more people. And if you leave a multi-star review wherever you get this podcast, that'll help others find us more easily. Of course, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, and other podcast providers. You can visit our website, AA Recovery Interviews, where you can listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.